Well, I'm glad to see everyone today. Welcome to those who are online. We're glad you're here. Today we are continuing our series of misused stories of the Bible. We've come to probably the most famous story of them all, the story of David and Goliath. So if you would turn in your Bibles or scroll on your screen to 1 Samuel 17. So you'll go, uh, if you start at the beginning of your Old Testament, you're going to keep going until you get to Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. And uh, if you start getting, if you get as far as Psalms, you've gone too far. But past Joshua and Judges, we'll get to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to go through the entire chapter today. It's very long, 58 verses. So I'm going to do it as we go through uh, the sermon. Um, but uh, it'll give us the full story of David and Goliath and everything going on. So before we begin, and uh, while you find your place there, let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. We live by every word that proceeds from your mouth, and we need this word that deals with great fear and little faith. And so thank you for bringing us this familiar story so we might learn more about you and have our faith renewed and strengthened as a result. Help us to see your grace in this story. Help us to see our own need of your grace this morning. Help us to know you more through 1 Samuel 17. So we pray, have mercy on us this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. I don't know how many of you have seen the 2011 film, We Bought a Zoo. It was based on a true story of a British man named Benjamin Mee, M-E-E. And in 2006, uh, Benjamin Mee and his family purchased and moved in to a 30-acre zoo. In his book by the same title, uh, he says that his new neighbors included five Siberian tigers, three African lions, nine wolves, three big brown European bears, four Asian short-clawed otters, two flamingos, a Brazilian tapir named Ronnie, some large boa constrictors, and a tarantula. So you're worried about pests in your house. So the zoo was dangerously run down, and he was faced with a series of immediate challenges, including dealing with a rat infestation, and, of course, finding enough money to feed all those animals. And on the fourth day of their new lives, a jaguar escaped, endangering the entire neighborhood. Despite all of those difficulties, him and his family restored the zoo to a place of beauty and safety that provided healing for themselves and for their community. But it wasn't easy. And me admits, there were a lot of times when I thought, what have I done? And in the film version, he's played by Matt Damon. And he says, and I thought this was interesting, sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage. Just literally 20 seconds 
of embarrassing bravery. And I promise you, something great will come of it. That's not just a great line from a well-written screenplay. That's about how long it took for David to charge Goliath. It was literally 20 seconds of insane courage. And it's in that moment that we screw this passage up. See, the account of David and Goliath is uh, the most famous account in all literature. It's a tale of right versus might in which the little guy beats up the bully. This story is part of our common culture. When the underdog wins a sporting event or an election, we say that David beat Goliath. And we love underdog stories. Sadly, throughout the years, many people have badly misunderstood the significance of David's battle with Goliath. For example, though I generally enjoy these videos, there is a children's Veggie Tales video, Dave and the Giant Pickle, in which Dave, upset over not being allowed to join his brothers who have all gone off to war, is resigned to staying at home and taking care of the farm. When a giant pickle is sent to attack his village, Dave relies on God's teaching and his own self-esteem to fight the monster. And it becomes a morality tale about overcoming fear. And I can't tell you, as I researched for this this week, how many sermons I found on giant killing as a way of life how to defeat the giants in your life. It was impressive. And yet, this is one of my favorite stories. As I wrote earlier this week, when I was growing up in Oakland, New Jersey, this was my all-time favorite Bible story. The little guy wins, the big guy goes down, the little guy chops off his head, and the winner's name, David. How cool is that? A little guy named David. I love this story. And I still do. However, when most people read it or speak on it, usually the lesson goes like this. Goliath represents your greatest fears, and David represents how you should handle those fears, which is just go right at them. Just take them out. And the moral of the story is be like David. Or what Brian Chappell calls one of the killer bees. Be like, be good, be disciplined. Be like David. And yet this story is not primarily about David. It's about the Lord whom David represents. So who are we supposed to identify with in this story? I mean, by nature, we're not like David, who actually doesn't show any fear and who bravely conquers his enemies. And I seriously hope you're not identifying with Goliath. Rather, we're like the fearful people who desperately need a champion to defeat an enemy they're incapable of defeating on their own. Let's get to the story. We're going to go through the first few sections pretty quick because it's the later sections that have the real message of the passage. So we'll start verses 1 through 11. And the giant's challenge. 
the giant's town, starting at verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah, and camped between Sokah and Azekah in Ephesdomim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered, and encamped in the valley of Elah. And they drew up in battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, about nine and a half feet. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him, and he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. But let me just recap what's happening here. Philistines, Israelites are great enemies. They came to the Valley of Elah. They, they camp out on both sides. The Israelites are on one hill. The Philistines are on the other. And they set up their battle lines. And in the middle, of course, is no man's land. It's the danger zone. It's literally the Valley of Death. And no one goes there. At some point, a battle is going to happen. Israel and the Philistines have reached a military stalemate. Both sides are dug in. And whoever won the coming battle is going to make a big difference because the loser would be enslaved to the winner for years. All their families would be enslaved for years. And then suddenly, coming down into the valley of death, into the no man's land, into the danger zone, comes Goliath. And Goliath is this massive human fighting machine. Over nine feet tall, heavily armored, well armed, and verse four is called a champion. Now that word literally means the man between. He's the man who stands between the two sides, between the two armies, between the two enemies. Goliath, the champion of the Philistines, challenges Israel to send forth the man to fight him in representative combat. Now, those represented by the loser surrender to the winner. But you know, Goliath is much worse than a bully. He's a blasphemer who curses the Lord and curses the Lord's people. 
And the same Hebrew word used of Goliath taking his stand against Israel is used in Psalm 2 of the kings of the earth who take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed one, which makes Goliath an antichrist figure. Goliath should worship Israel's God and submit to Israel's anointed king. And defying both invites God's judgment. But instead, we have Goliath arrogantly challenging them. This enormous figure, he begins to shout at them, verse 8, Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. Very interesting, he says, choose a man for yourself. Because where have we heard those words before? If we had gone through all of Samuel, we would have known at the very beginning of the story of Israel's kingship, Samuel spoke to the people in 1 Samuel 12 of the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. The Israelites already have chosen a man for themselves, and his name is Saul. We're told in verse 10 that Goliath says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And then in verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So there it is. The king, Saul, is not being kingly. The king's army is not being kingly. And here's the great challenge. If they don't meet Goliath, they're going to be slaves again. Their families are going to be slaves for the rest of their lives. And yet, they don't have the courage to meet Goliath. Saul and his army are overwhelmed by fear, and they refuse to take up the challenge. And so now we're confronted with a royal failure. A royal failure, verses 12 through 25. And I'll remind you, we do put the outline on the website. You can print that out and bring that with you. I know several folks uh, at home are using that to follow along. Starting at verse 12. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, so they're in the army. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were uh, Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephod, this parched grain, and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. 
And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with him, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So what is the king supposed to do? Well, biblically, he should trust God who stands with his people and who opposes the oppressor. And that's actually part of the theme of the book. It starts off with Hannah's song in chapter 2. And there it says, uh, He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointing. So Saul, as the king, has been appointed to fight the people's battles. And he should go forth in faith. And that's actually part of his job. First Samuel 8 says, But we want a king that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Saul became king, God specifically said in 1 Samuel 9, He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. But instead we find Saul hanging back in fear and unbelief, offering a reward to someone who's going to go fight his battle for him. The fear of Israel, like that of the ten spies in Moses' days after Numbers 13, is due to unbelief. Now, as a result, this challenge of Goliath turns into 40 days of fear. Now, David's not with the army. Remember, he's the youngest of eight. And he doesn't hear Goliath's initial challenge. Probably he's too young for military service. But he's sent by his father, Jesse, to check on his older brothers and to bring them food. And little does Jesse imagine what he's sending David to do. And David arrives on the battlefield, he gets this close-up view of Goliath. He sees all the uh, fearful Israelite troops. Verse 23, as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, like we might have forgotten who he was, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard it. The only difference this time from all the other times, and it's a difference of monumental importance, although no one could have guessed it at the time, comes at the very end of that verse. And David heard it. Did anyone notice? Did anyone care that this young David from Bethlehem heard it? Probably not. But this is a turning point in Israelite history. Because David heard him, David had a faithful reply. David had a faithful reply, verse 26 through 39. We would pick up there. 
And David said to the men who stood by, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The people answered him in the same way, So it shall be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? You can almost see the sibling rivalry, you know, with the older brother, like, you're just down here for the fight. You're just coming down here to see the fight. You know, you're a punk. Go home, take care of your little sheep, little boy. And David's like, oh, I didn't do anything. And it says, and he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. Verse 31, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. <coughs> and Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor, put a helmet of bronze on his head, clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them on. You ever seen the pictures of like little kids that put on dad's clothes? That's kind of the image I have here. He's got Saul's armor, David's uh, still young, and it's too big and it doesn't fit, and he just can't move. And again, let me just go through this quickly. These are David's first recorded words in the Bible. And he's eloquently expressing his indignation over the blasphemy of Goliath, this uncircumcised pagan who defies the armies of the living God. In verse 26, we're reminded circumcision is a sign of God's covenant with his people. And more to the point, David sounds nothing at all like everything that we've heard from everyone else so far, including Saul and any of the other Israelites there in the Valley of Elah. David spoke of taking away the reproach from Israel rather than being shattered by it. 
He expresses contempt, not fear, before the Philistine champion. He saw, as apparently no one had, that this Philistine, this pagan worshiper of false gods, was mocking not only Israel, but Israel's God, who alone is the living God. And David is a man who sees as God sees and is zealous for the Lord's honor. Now his brother misunderstands his motives and rebukes him. Uh, Saul hears there's somebody brave enough to fight Goliath and he sends for him. But both his brother and Saul see only with the eyes of the flesh. And they both doubt that David can prevail. Now David recalls as if this was a minor thing. How the Lord has delivered him from the lion and the bear. That doesn't sound so minor to me. Sure, the guy who bought this zoo would have appreciated being able to take on the lion and the bear. But David's faith enables him to see how big God is and how small that makes Goliath. And he's apparently not afraid to go up against seemingly impossible odds, knowing the Lord is with him. His trust is not his own bravery, his own skill, or even in his self-esteem, but in the Lord. And finally, Saul wishes him well and uh, offers him his armor. And David refuses the armor. It's too big. He's not accustomed to it. And instead prepares his own sling and stones for battle. The fact of the matter, this is a sling, not a slingshot. But a sling is a weapon. A sling is a little patch of leather with two long leather strings. And you put a stone two or three inches in diameter in the leather and you swing it around over your head. And when you get it going really fast, you let go of one of the strings. And if you do it right, a sling can propel a stone over 100 miles an hour. And that's what David has, a sling and five smooth stones. Those are all his resources for battle. Verses 40 to 47. His resources for battle. And so it says there, Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones. I don't know if you can see those. Folks online can see those. And he put them in a shepherd's pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog? Did you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. 
and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. We just want to cheer. Now, here I have five smooth stones. These five stones actually came from the Valley of Elah in Israel. I was able to visit Israel back in 1990, and when we visited this famous valley, I picked up these stones and brought them home with me. Now, I'm pretty sure that the Israeli tourist board goes and restocks the stones after all the tourist groups go through. But, you know, I told you I love this story. And this week, Frank, our always kind assistant pastor, suggested that I put one of these stones in a sling and swing it around and ask all the tall people to stand up. <laughs> I mean, that would be the ultimate object lesson, wouldn't it? Well, lucky for you, I don't own a sling. At least not that kind of sling. However, David did. And in our story, David goes to the field of battle where Goliath immediately approaches him. And before the fight, um, in warfare for ages, each side taunts the other. And Goliath, upon seeing this youthful David, gets angry. The Israelites obviously are not taking him seriously. How dare they send out such an unworthy opponent. And I imagine that an angry Goliath is no doubt more terrifying than anything they'd seen in the Valley of Elah for the last 40 days. In verse 43, and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And wittingly or not, by invoking the Philistine gods, Goliath signals the true dimensions of this confrontation. More than Philistines versus Israelites, this is the gods of the Philistines versus the living God. It's a warrior who falls on Dagon versus a youth who's the Lord's anointed. And Goliath, full of self-confidence, curses David, and by implication, the Lord whom David represents. Again, reminding us of Psalm 2, where it says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is not merely a contest between two men. It is cosmic combat between the gods of the Philistines and the Lord God of Israel. And then David makes his, or Goliath makes his final threat, verse 44. He says, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And in Goliath we see the literal fulfillment of Proverbs 16, 18, which says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Undaunted, David not only approaches the menacing giant, but he gives one of the classic speeches in the Bible, one that rebuked the Philistine for his mocking, expresses David's confidence in the Lord's power to save, and announces his purpose in slaying the giant champion. And I think these are some of the most inspiring words of the Old Testament. He clearly defines what's at stake. Verse 45. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
the threat and disaster is not going to happen on this day. Not because Goliath is any less powerful, not because Israel had the wherewithal to resist him, and not because Israel doesn't actually deserve to be defeated. They actually did. But it doesn't happen because the God of Israel has chosen a king for himself on whom the Spirit of the Lord has come powerfully. We saw that back at 1 Samuel 16, a chapter before. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And David, the coming king, the chosen and anointed one, is about to fight the Philistines. David knows he's an instrument of God's judgment against the oppressor, and he expresses certainty that the Lord will give him victory. Verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Not only is he going to win, this is going to be a lesson to all those fearful, unbelieving Israelites. The second half of verse 46 that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. So the victory over Goliath, the deliverance from his threats and challenges happened so that the people of Israel, and ultimately the people in all the earth, would know that the Lord is God. The purpose of David's victory is not just to save Israel and defeat the Philistines. The purpose is the glorification of God in the eyes of the world. This is David's gospel message. I come in the name of the Lord. You have mocked the Lord. I will strike you down so the world will know who God is. Leviticus 24.16 ordained that the penalty for blasphemy is death by stoning. And David has come to single-handedly enforce that censure. That's exactly what happened. So let's finish with the result of victory, verses 48 to the end. The result of victory. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. He put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took the sword and drew it out of his sheep and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistines, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this you? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. 
And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So we have this really long build-up, and then the warfare takes place quickly. David boldly runs out to meet Goliath, and he fells him with a stone hurled from his sling. And then he beheads Goliath with his own sword. Now, if this was a morality tale, at this point you would say something like, the reason Goliath lost was because his self-esteem was too high. And he banished his fears when he should have been afraid. Or maybe as one guy said, clearly he didn't watch Star Trek because he went in with his shields down and everyone knows you don't do that. I'm not getting that up. In reality, Goliath becomes like this false guy. Dagon, who was decapitated when the Ark of the Covenant was taken to the Philistine temple back in 1 Samuel 5. There it says, when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. But as Psalm 115 reminds us, those who make idols become like them, so do all who trust in them. False gods and those who worship them cannot stand before the Lord. And of course, after Goliath's death, the Philistines decide not to surrender and they run for their lives. The Israelites now take courage, pursue their enemies, and strike them down. And then finally, Saul takes notice of David, no doubt planning to make further use of his abilities, and the outcome of the whole thing is going to be the continued rise of David in Israel. After Saul's pitiful failures, finally God has raised up a man who can deliver Israel from their enemies. But what you have to realize here is this encounter between David and Goliath is part of a cosmic battle which began all the way back in Genesis 3, when Satan defeated Adam and gained dominion over the earth. And at that time, the Lord promised that a champion would come, born of a woman, who would crush the serpent, representing Satan, Genesis 3.15. And God later chose the family of Abraham, to whom he gave a land and a people to be the nation to whom he would bring deliverance to all humanity. And as we come to 1 Samuel 17, God's people are unable to enjoy the land because they're being harassed by these idolatrous enemies, the Philistines, who are represented by the blasphemous, arrogant Goliath. Israel needs a champion to deliver her from this satanic oppressor. And the people's king, Saul, it's his job to fight the people's battles, proves unworthy. So the Lord raises up a new champion, David, who defeats Israel's enemies through God's strength, thus delivering his people. And the point of the story is that David's victory points ahead to a greater battle and a greater David. The Goliath and the Philistines uh, he represented are actually part of a long Bible theme, an important reality that the Bible speaks about a lot, the enemies of God and his people. 
It would not be difficult to trace that theme through the Bible. We would see by the time we reach the New Testament. It's perfectly clear that the real enemies of God and his people are far more terrifying and far more powerful than any giant who stood that day in the Valley of Elam. All of us face an enemy, an army of enemies, as real, as powerful, and as terrifying as Goliath. Death wields its terrible sword and mocks us all. Sin threatens to bring us down, and Satan himself seeks whom he may devour. And yet this passage is not primarily about how we can overcome our big problems in life with God's help or how to deal with bullies. We're not primarily to identify with David. You're not David. Rather, you're the frightened people. I'm the frightened people. We're like the army of Israel who faces a terrifying enemy which he cannot defeat. And what does God give to frightened people? What does God give to fearful people? He doesn't give frightened people a good example. He gives them a champion, a savior. He doesn't deal with their fears through inspiration, although, as I said, I think David's speech is way inspiring. He deals with their fears through imputation. Imputation is a big theological word that means the work accomplished by someone else is credited to us. David won the victory, but he doesn't just save himself, he saves all Israel. And we, like the Israelites, need a great champion, anointed by God, to fight our battles and gain a victory that we can never achieve on our own. And Jesus is the champion whom God promised would crush Satan. Just as David won the victory over Goliath without the help of Israel's army, so Christ wins the victory on the cross alone. There he defeats Satan's sin and death for us. Like David, Jesus was zealous for the Lord's honor in the face of blasphemy. Just as David was rejected by his brothers, uh, so Jesus was rejected by his. Just as David bravely enters into battle against Goliath, so Jesus boldly sets his face to go to the cross for us. Jesus faces blasphemous, arrogant foes who thought they could destroy him. Just as Goliath was defeated by David, thus setting the people of Israel free from the fear of slavery to the Philistines, so Satan has been conquered by Jesus, our anointed champion, setting us free from the fear of Satan, free from the fear of sin, and free from the fear of death. And the teaching of the New Testament is clear on this. Hebrews 2 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of these same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That victory is then applied to us. We see that in Colossians 2. It says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. On the cross, Jesus was our champion, our man between. He stood between us and judgment 
between us and death. Judgment and death bear down on us with violent force threatening to destroy us, but Jesus stood between before the full force of their fury. Our future hung on his shoulders as he hung on the cross. Now we see throughout these series in Hebrews 11, these great heroes are listed. And we see, remember Abel, remember Rahab, remember Gideon, remember Samson, remember David. And then we get to the end of the list and we switch over to chapter 12 and the writer says, look to Jesus. The founder and perfecter, the archegos, of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. It says, look to Jesus, consider him. Some versions say, fix your eyes on Jesus. Now just remember. We have a whole chapter of remember. Remember David but fix your eyes on Jesus, the writer said. The founder and perfecter, the archegos of our faith. The word archegos is a Greek word. It's translated in a number of ways, one of which is champion. And here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. This is what the Bible says. God sent the greater David, Jesus Christ. He was weak. He was little. He didn't save us in spite of his weakness like David did, but through his weakness. He didn't save us from physical death like David did, but from eternal death. He didn't save us at the risk of his life like David did, but more than that, at the cost of his life. David went into the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus went into death itself. The victory of Christ is breathtaking news. The demands of the law have been met in perfect obedience of Jesus. The penalty for sin has been paid in the sin-bearing death of Jesus. The power of death has been broken in the mighty resurrection of Christ from the dead. And knowing that Christ is our champion, that Christ is our man between, now we can seek to encourage many a disheartened Christian, showing that even in our weakness, the Lord remains mighty to save. Instead of fretting over our own well-being, knowing that our eternal security is secure in Christ, we can work, we can seek to strengthen the faith of other believers. We can seek to make known to other people in other churches that the word of God remains mighty to convert the lost, build up the saints, and guide the church. Let each of us, through the battles that God places before us, encourage one another, and let us raise together that banner under which so many believers have stood before us, knowing that Revelation 12, now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Who accuses them day and night before our God. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. The message of 1 Samuel is not that we're called to be like David. The message of 1 Samuel is that we have a David. Think about that. 
you need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are amazed once again at the grace that you showed to the people of Israel. They're so undeserving, and yet you sent them a champion. We're not nearly so amazed at the grace you've shown us because we think we're better than the Israelites. But your word makes clear that's not the case. We're fully capable of just as much fear, just as little faith, just as much doubt, just as little courage. And yet here you are again showing grace to the undeserving, to us. Lord, thank you that no one is beyond your grace. Thank you that we're not beyond your grace. Thank you that on the cross, Jesus has already won the victory and that the blood of Jesus covers our sins. Thank you, Father, for bringing us to the place where we are now. We're about to partake of the bread and the cup and with the power of your Holy Spirit, we're about to take more deeply into our hearts and our minds the reality of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And that will make us courageous in him. We ask all these things in the name, in his name, your son, Jesus, the son of David, our champion, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Receive God's blessing from Acts 13. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is free. God bless you. We'll see you next week.